going to start our new series this morning called Kingdom First. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 17. We're going to kind of be all over the, the New Testament in this series. Um, we're going to look at a lot of instructional texts of Jesus. We're going to look at some, he taught a lot of parables about the kingdom and then some other um, of the epistles as well. well. We'll take a look at this over the summer. This morning we're going to start in John 17 and you'll notice when you get there, turn to verse 20. We're going to pose a question that was posed 2,000 years ago that I think is a really good question to launch this series. One I know that's been on my mind and heart a lot in the last year. Look at verse 20 of Luke 17. It says, Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied. And I'll just stop there. That's the question. So 2,000 years ago, the Pharisees came and realized they were the leaders of an oppressed people, the Jewish people, who were living under Roman authority, the Roman umbrella of government, and they were a very oppressed people. It wasn't long after this in A.D. 70 where Rome just, when Rome just tried to wipe them out. So they were very oppressed people. So they were asking, when is the kingdom of God going to come? When is something better coming our way? And you know, with all the events of the last year, I think I have asked that in my heart more than maybe any other year of my life. And I've talked to many of you. I've had more people coming to me this year and saying, hey, how should we interpret what's happening this year? Is this all moving us more towards when Jesus will come? Maybe. It's a longing of our hearts, not just for believers, but I think people in general, people are like, there's got to be a better kingdom than this. We're kind of sick of this. And so when we face hard times, whether it's physically like a global pandemic, whether it's politically in the divisiveness that has seemed to rule our culture this year, or the racial divide, those things just, we become weary of those and we long for a better, a better kingdom. But you need to understand this morning, the kingdom of God, at least as it is now, is not a utopian existence. It will be someday. But right now, and I want to suggest to you, the kingdom is already here. We'll explain that this morning. But it doesn't mean a perfect, blissful existence. That's a yet future element of the kingdom. And so you're going to hear that a lot through this series. We're going to talk about the right now or the already and the not yet elements of the kingdom. So when you think of the kingdom of God, think of it in two pieces, what's here already and what's coming yet. And Jesus distinguishes that in this text. And so it might be helpful before we go any farther to just give you a definition of what we mean when we say the kingdom of God. And I'm going to give this very general definition. It's true of any monarchy. A king is a monarch. And where the king rules, that's a kingdom. And so the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God is the place where God's rule is sovereign, is a place where God is reigning. That's the kingdom of God. And that already exists on the earth, but it's difficult to pin that down, as Jesus tells us. Let me read on here. Verse 20, Jesus replied, he answers this question. The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. So if you're sitting there going, okay, well, where is this king? Where is this rule in the reign of God? Jesus says, well, you can't observe it, at least not in its current form. Nor will people say, oh, here it is. Oh, yeah, there it is. Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. We'll talk about that. 
Verse 22, then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Don't go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot who was in Sodom and Gomorrah. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. He said it'll be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. And what he means by just like this, it'll be obvious. <laughs> on that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, and the other left. Two elements of the kingdom we have to understand. Let's ask God's help in this. Father, We thank you that uh, the kingdom has come on earth and it's advancing. It's growing in impact and in number and in influence. And thankful that you give us the opportunity to be a part of that rule and reign. And God, yet it is not even observable today. So would you help us sort this out, this already and not yet elements of the kingdom, that we could understand it and that we can be compelled to live faithfully to our King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, let's break this down. Number one, Jesus says of the kingdom that is already, he says that the coming of God's kingdom to earth is not observable. Now it was in Jesus, so to speak, because Jesus was the king. But he's like, today it's, it's not observable. So nobody says, here it is, or there it is. Because it's not a political entity, it's not an ideological thing, it's not a form of government, it's not even a movement really. It's, I don't know, can't observe it. Can't quantify this kingdom of God. This is what Jesus teaches. So this current kingdom of God on earth is not an empirically identifiable movement, political party. It's not a government, not a social group, not even an ideology. It is not an external thing with which we can have data about it or even really align ourselves. The kingdom of God is something that can't be observed. So you can be American or Asian, European or African, and neither is more kingdom of God than the other. It's not in one particular country or another. You can be educated or non-educated. You can be wealthy or poor. That's really not a statement of the kingdom of God. There's poor people who are part of the kingdom. There's wealthy people who are part of the kingdom. There's educated people. There's non-educated people. That's not the issue. It can't be observed that way empirically like normal things. The things I listed here are not quantifiable, and the kingdom on earth now is not quantifiable. That's what Jesus says. It cannot be observed. All right, point number two, but the kingdom of God is here. Jesus says it is in your midst. Notice that at the end of verse 21. And notice a footnote, 
a footnote is, or within you. And so, well, which way is it? Is it in your midst or is it within you? I'm going to say e- either way, you se- either word you select there and you have to determine sometimes uh, these translations of the original language Greek word according to context, which is very difficult here. So usually when that's the case, there's a footnote. And uh, I'm saying whether Jesus meant it in your midst or meant it with the word within you doesn't matter because that's where the kingdom is now. It's within us, the people of the kingdom. Other texts of Scripture make that very clear. So by in your midst, Jesus is saying, yeah, in the people of this room who are believers, it's in you and it's also kind of here in the midst because the kingdom of God is is within. All right. Um, But again, it's very difficult to, you, you can't even look at another person and say, boy, the kingdom of God's in them. You might see some characteristics and that's great. We ought to live as salt and light to the world, but it's very difficult to quantify it. That's why Jesus says, nobody says here it is or there it is. And yet the impact of the kingdom is felt because of the influence of kingdom people. It's kind of like the metaphor of the wind. Jesus actually used that metaphor in John 3, 8 when he was talking to Nicodemus, remember that? He said to Nicodemus, you, you, you can feel the influence of the wind, but you really can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. I mean, if, even if you have all the devices to measure wind today and it blows across your property, you can't say where it's going to go when it gets to Toledo. You can't predict it. But you can see the results of it. Every time there's a strong wind with my old trees in my house, I have to pick sticks up. As I see the results of the wind. You can feel the results of the wind, but it's very difficult to pin it down with data. And so that's kind of the point Jesus is making here. This already kingdom is really an invisible kingdom. It's not observable, but it's here. That's because the king came 2,000 years ago. But he says people will mistakenly say then, oh, there it is, or here it is. Actually, it's down in the next verse, in verse 22, 23, I'm sorry. People will tell you, here it is, there he is. Don't run after them. And that's our next point. Don't chase information or informers. This is really a critical point for us culturally right now. Let me go back and read verse 22 and lead into that. He said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. What Jesus is saying there is one of these days after I ascend, after I'm crucified, raised, and ascend back to heaven, you will long for the days when I was with you in the flesh. You'll want to see that again, but you won't see it. Because my time isn't come to come back yet. And so then he says, so I'm telling you that. So he says, then don't believe people who tell you, oh, there he is, or here he is. Don't go running off after them. And I think that that point has such relevance for us today. Don't chase information or informers. And for our culture, we are so information saturated. Between the news media and there's no such thing as objective news anymore. There really isn't. I don't believe it for a minute, no matter what the broadcast company is, no matter what the article or the podcast is. It's not reliable because everybody's bringing us data, bringing us information with their spin consistent with their agenda and their purpose. What can be trusted? The Word of God. And I would say maybe only the Word of God in this culture. That doesn't mean we shouldn't keep up on affairs and news and 
You know, in some cases this is helpful because we have things like video now. And, and that can show us, that can give us real data, real information. But remember that information without context can also be quite deceiving. So we have to be careful about that. So th- I think this is all why Jesus said this. He says, while you wait for me to come back, don't chase after the people to say, oh, look, this is happening. I bet Jesus is coming soon. Or, oh, look, this is happening. We should align ourselves with this movement because they're going to prepare for Jesus to come. He says, don't chase those people. Don't chase that information. Be loyal to the rule and the reign of God in your heart. Be loyal to King and faithful to King Jesus. Um, I've shared this illustration with you before, but I want to do it again. When I was a youth pastor, I was in Indiana. It's a long time ago. For some of you, it's going to seem like Civil War days, but anyway. Because, uh, you know, you, you talk to young people about the 80s, and they're like, oh, yeah. That was right after Gettysburg, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what? Stop it. So anyway, so I'm a youth pastor back in the 80s, and my kids came to me and they said, is Jesus going to come soon? And there was almost a, ah, ah, ah. I said, what? what's wrong with you guys? What are you talking about? Well, haven't you seen the brochure? Because back then before electronics and social media, we printed three-fold brochures. Remember those things? Yeah. So, and there was a three-fold brochure floating around northern central Indiana titled 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1988. And that's all it was. Jesus is coming. And you open up the brochure, a list of literally 88 reasons why Jesus was coming. I'm like, what? Well, that just proves he's not coming back in 1988 because Jesus said nobody knows the day or the time. These guys don't have it right. Anybody who says tomorrow's the day, guess what? Tomorrow's not the day. Jesus himself doesn't know. And yet everybody's all (laughs) stirred up. Because of the threefold brochure. Well, today, magnify that like a thousand gazillion times, and that's the information we have. Everybody's saying, hey, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Look at this. This is what it means. Don't chase those things. Seek Jesus. Don't chase after the informers. So, Levi Stuckey, anybody remember Levi? He was our first resident of our residency. This is like probably 10 years ago. Um, you can tell it was a long time ago if you see Levi. He has a lot of gray hair now. He's also soon going to have a fourth child. When he left here, he had none. So, okay, things have changed in his life. So he's actually preaching this series with us down at the Napoleon Church. And we haven't done that in a lot of years, so we're prepping that together. So he shows up on Mondays when we're doing this. And I love his insight. He's really helped us. And he shared as we were talking about this point. He said, yeah, you know, he said, I've learned at points in my life, this, this chasing this information almost becomes an obsession for me. And when it does, it's not helpful to live for the rule and the reign of God now because I'm so focused on the yet future that I get consumed with it and I'm not faithful in the present. And I would say, believer in Christ, that we are vulnerable to that. I, I totally identified with that when he said that. I was like, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm, I can see that. And there's plenty of people, I'm not going to mention a name, and don't you put a name to this. There's plenty of people out there who leverage this for financial gain. Who put books out, who say things, who even preach things that, woo, stir up because we're vulnerable to that. We want to know when Jesus comes back because we want him to come back. We want him to come back so bad, and that's okay, and that's a good thing. 
But that shouldn't consume our life. And if it is consuming our life, we're missing the potential of living under the rule and the reign of God now, today, right now. And we need to do both. The king has already come. We need to live under his rule and reign now while we anticipate and look forward to that day when he comes again. So that leads us to a question, I think. What, what is ruling my life now, today? And that's a question we're going to have to ask several times in this series. And this book does a great job of asking that. By the way, if you ordered this book last week, the order came in. We've got them out on the tables here in the lobby. You can, you can pick yours up afterwards. If you didn't order it, stop by there. See if there's extras. You really do want to read this. It's an easy read, but very insightful, really helpful, not only for this series, but we already know what we're going to preach a year from now. This book is great for that, too. So... All right, so you want to read it. All right, so much for the plug. Let me read you a paragraph I started for you last week. The author, his name's Jeremy Treat. He says, a throne never remains empty. We're all ruled by something. Um, Many people are ruled by their careers. They worship success, sacrifice their family and friends, and serve their employers. For other For others, having the right physical appearance rules their lives. They worship at the altar of bodily perfection, sacrifice their time and money to achieve the perfect look, and wait vigilantly to be noticed and adored. But then he goes on and he says, anything that rules over you other than God will be a harsh king. That thing will make promises it cannot keep. It will disappoint you and then blame you, telling you it's your fault. Whatever you look to in order to satisfy you will end up enslaving you. The reign of God brings freedom. The reign of everything else leads to slavery. Boy, I think there's some great words in there. Whatever you look to in order to satisfy you will end up enslaving you. That is so true. So, you know, we can... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me, let me stick with the outline here. Fourth point. The future kingdom of God which is that measurable, maybe global, political, socioeconomic, will come as an unmistakable surprise. We want it to come. We long for the day. But Jesus says, you don't have to, you don't have to chase the informers about is this going to be the day, because when it comes, you're going to know it right away. Look at it. Verse 24. For the Son of Man in His day, referring to the day He comes again, will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. Well, you can't miss lightning. You can be blind and tell there was lightning because the thunder's going to... And even if you're deaf and blind, you're still going to... You can feel the ground moving. It's unmistakable. If you're somewhere where it lightnings, everybody knows it. It there was lightning. It's unmistakable. Well... That's what Jesus goes on and talks about here. Verse 26 through 27, he references the flood of Noah, how people were just going on about their business, yada-da, and then it rains, the flood came, they're all destroyed. There was no question about God's judgment. Same way with Sodom and Gomorrah. In the day of Lot, verse 28, people were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planning, building, just doing life. And then this fire falls from heaven and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Then Jesus says in verse 30, it'll be just like this on the day the Son of Man was revealed. He's not saying there that sulfur and fire are going to fall from heaven or there's going to be another flood. He's saying, no, it's going to be just as much of a surprise, but it will be unmistakable, just like lightning, just like a global flood, just like sulfur that rains down and destroys two cities. It'll be unmistakable and it'll come as a great surprise. 
That's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, which is the longest instructional text we have of Jesus telling us about his coming again, the whole application of that is two words, be ready, just be ready. Live for the kingdom now because the king has already come. Learn what it means to live under the rule and the reign of God right now, every day, every hour, as you are ready and waiting for that glorious day when he comes again. All right, so that, now that's a hard call. I, I just want to say that. There's, there's tension involved here. And it's, you're going to hear say this many times throughout this series. It's really this tension between living between the already and the not yet. Because the king has already come, but uh, it's not even observable. And the, king, the fullness of the kingdom is out there, yet it's not yet. So we're called to live in this tension. Live under the rule and reign of God now while we wait for that great day of cultural culmination. And so that leads us to kind of a general statement of what I'm going to call the series application. Live faithful to the rule and reign of God, that's the kingdom, within you now, while eagerly longing for the visible kingdom that is yet to come. Live faithful to the rule and reign of God now, this day, every day, while eagerly longing for the visible kingdom that is yet to come. That's the language Jesus used. He said to his disciples, you will long for the day when you can see the Son of Man again. And the church has been longing for that day for 2,000 years. So we've got we to gotta learn to live under the rule and reign of God now while we wait for that yet glorious day. So a big part of that is letting the rule and reign of God determine the trajectory and responses of my life now. Let Jesus be my sovereign, my Lord, my King. And, and Jesus is excited about this later in Luke 18, just the next chapter, verse 8, I think it is. Luke says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? Because when Jesus does come back, the first thing he's going to do is gather up his kingdom people. I'm not going to predict when that's going to happen or even the, the, some of the specifics of that, but the Scripture makes it pretty clear that's what's going to happen. He's going to come and gather up His folks. And that's the beginning of the fullness of the kingdom on earth. And so He's going to be looking for those who've been faithful. Not just for those who are looking for Him. Everybody's looking for a better kingdom. Nothing new about that. He's going to look for those who are living the kingdom, who are living under the rule and reign of God and know how to do that and are doing that faithfully into His glory. Now let me break this down into four more specific applications for you because I want you, to, I want you to ponder these. I want you to think about these not only this morning but as we go through this series. So number one is this. Seek, seek the King of the coming kingdom because you can find Him because He already came. If you're like, I'm not sure what all this kingdom stuff means. You know about Jesus or you wouldn't be here. You've maybe given your life to the best of your knowledge to Him, but maybe He's not really ruling. Maybe He's not really on the throne of your life. Is it time to say, that's what I want? I want to learn what it means to live as a subject of this King that has already come. Seek the King. Scripture makes it clear. If you seek Him with all your heart, you will find Him. The Kingdom of God is first about a King. And right now, the king hasn't even set up a political rule yet on earth. He doesn't have a throne. He doesn't have a, a crown here on this earth. But he's the king. 
live under his rule. Secondly, learn to love and be loyal to your king. You know, we're not, generally we don't, uh, we don't embrace monarchies because <laughs> we haven't seen any good examples of one. But Jesus the king is a monarchy. Let there be no doubt about this. It's one guy calling the shots. <laughs> one guy ruling. And someday that one guy is going to rule over all the planet, over all the universe. And Philippians 2 says, Then is the day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of the Father. That day isn't now. But it, it, it's coming. So we should learn to love him because he's a good, benevolent king. We're going to sing about this if I ever stop talking this morning, which isn't likely because I could talk a lot about this. But I think we'll get there. We need to learn to love him. And I think this helps us with our vulnerability and our, um, our uh, insatiable appetite to know signs and wonders. If we could just interpret the signs and we'll know when Jesus comes. Jesus says, stop it. Stop chasing that stuff. I'm going to come. I don't even know when. When I do, oh, you'll know it. Don't waste your time on that stuff. Learn to live under my rule and my reign right now. That's what's paramount for us. But as we learn to love him as this benevolent, good king, I think it makes it easier to, to live with waiting for the full kingdom. Because that's hard. Because we see so many things that are wrong politically, socioeconomically, prejudiced, unfairness, injustice. It's all over the planet. It always has been. And so we long for the day when that all gets fixed. But the more we love Jesus now, the more we trust him, the more we live under his umbrella of sovereignty in full dependence on him, I think the more he equips us to wait for that day. And he doesn't want us to be idle here. He wants us to live for the good of our culture. And we're going to see that by way of a video in just a couple minutes here. So learn to love and be loyal to your king. The more you are rooted in love of this monarch, um, the easier it will be, I think, to wait for the fullness of the kingdom. Number three, I've already suggested this, and this is a, really a personal application for me that I've had to put into practice this year, is just to repent of this information or informers driving your life. Uh, you know, I didn't think I ever was really vulnerable to this, but boy, this year I've, I've realized it, that some mornings I come to work and it's like I'm, I don't, I'm not at peace. My soul is troubled, and as I've tracked this now, I realize, well, it's that dumb article I read this morning. <laughs> and I don't basically trust much of the media, so I read a lot of different viewpoints. I, I read media that's coming from a lot of places, and then all of it's troubling. And it all stirs me up. It fires me up. Doesn't matter which perspective I read. I can read The Atlantic, which is way off on the liberal end. I can listen to Fox News, which is, and it, it stirs me up. It troubles me. I get to work and I'm all troubled. And I haven't started yet. And if I've had too much coffee, it's really not good. So I've, I have to learn to repent of this. The, this information, no media, no information should drive my life, should determine the trajectory of my life. And if, some, if something, some bit of information or an informer is stealing my peace and my joy, I need to repent of that. I need to anchor myself in Jesus Christ as my king and my sovereign so I can respond to the melee of information from a peaceful heart and a joyful center. 
So I have to repent of that. Maybe you do as well. Number four, this is really the point of the book that we want you to read as a corollary read, is to rearrange your life around the kingdom of God. How can you set and establish kingdom priorities and then rearrange your life according to those kingdom priorities? Here's the author's purpose of writing his book. He says, my aim is to help you learn how to rearrange your life around what matters most, the kingdom of God. To experience the life Jesus says we were made for, we need to have kingdom perspective, live with kingdom purpose, and learn to be kingdom people. That's what we want to happen in this series. Learn the king. Learn to live with kingdom purpose. And be kingdom people. That means you have to arrange your life around those priorities. Um, it, 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 might, it, it might mean you do different activities. You let go of some, you do different ones. It might not. But make sure in whatever activity you're doing, you're doing it for the purpose of the kingdom. And so don't hear me saying this morning it's wrong to align yourself with a particular political persuasion or a particular ideology or form of government or person of government. Go ahead and do that if you want. I don't care. But live for the kingdom in that realm, in that venue, in that atmosphere. God calls some people to be very involved in the political arena. Um, do that for the kingdom of God. Don't put your trust in a new system, in a movement, in an ideology that will become your king and your master. Serve your king and your master and allow, and, and allow the positioning of, of venues where you're in to, to use that for the influence of your king and your master. See the difference? So be involved in these different venues of life. But do it under the sovereignty of Jesus Christ for His glory out of faithfulness to Him. And we're going to show you a little video now that goes all the way back in the Old Testament. Um, and, and we see this in uh, the book of Daniel and his friends. And then it throttles forward to the New Testament as well. And then a couple of my brothers are going to come up. We're just going to debrief this a little with you. So let's watch this. And this is, this is it comes at you, so concentrate. And you may want to watch it more than once on your own. But let, let's watch it together. In the year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city and the temple were plundered and burned. Thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became exiles. And so now they're a minority surrounded by a new culture with new gods. Now, some Israelites chose to resist Babylon by revolting or withdrawing. Others gave in, adopting the Babylonian way of life and accepting these new gods as their own. And you might think those are your only two options, but the prophet Jeremiah told them to do something totally different and surprising. To settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So this is like a third way. Yeah, it's not compromise or revolt. What does it look like? Well, there's a whole book of the Bible that explores that question. It's the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of the Israelites taken into the Babylonian exile. And because Daniel had a royal heritage and education, he was recruited along with some friends to work in the high court of Babylon. Work for the enemy? That would be compromise. Or they could gain the king's trust and take him down from the inside. That's what you might expect, but instead they take Jeremiah's advice and choose the third way. They serve the king of Babylon, taking on Babylonian names and even clothing style. 
so they seek Babylon's well-being. But in doing so, aren't they just giving up their heritage? It could seem that way, but actually, they aren't. As you read on, the story focuses on moments where they draw the line, and they choose faithfulness to their God and resist the influence of Babylon. So, for example? Well, like when they're commanded to bow down to the idol of Babylon and give allegiance to the king as if he's a god. Ah, they won't go that far. Right. This is where you see their true loyalty. It requires them to critique Babylon's idolatry of power, its arrogance, its injustice, but they do it nonviolently by laying down their lives. And so God vindicates Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness. So they would serve Babylon, seek its well-being, but their loyalty was always to God. Yeah, this is what Jeremiah was envisioning. The way of the exile is a combination of loyalty and also subversion. So they're still exiles, but don't Daniel and his friends long to go home? Yes. In fact, Daniel believed that God was going to send a ruler to bring down Babylon and create a true kingdom of peace. Ah, when did he think this ruler would come? Well, at first he thought within his lifetime. But then he had a dream where he found out that after Babylon would come another oppressive empire, then another, then another. And so Babylon did fall, and Israel did get to go back home, but now they're ruled by Babylon's successors. And so they maintained the mindset of an exile, waiting for their true home to come to them. And they continued the same practice of loyalty and subversion to any new versions of Babylon that came along. And this leads us to the time of Jesus. The empire of his day was Rome, ruled by Caesar. Now, some Israelites wanted to resist, while others gave in and adopted Roman culture and its gods. But watch Jesus carry on the subversive loyalty of Daniel. Like when he said, it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar, give him back his coins. But then he said, don't mistake Caesar for God. God's the one who deserves your total life and allegiance. So the way of Jesus is this same mix of loyalty and subversion. Yeah, like he taught his followers to love and even bless their enemies. But he also got arrested for speaking out against the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and Rome. He critiqued their idolatry of power and it cost him his life. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead as the true king of the nations. The king that Daniel had hoped for. Right. And Jesus promised that one day his kingdom would prevail. And so until then, his followers are living in a type of exile. Yeah, this is why the Apostle Peter calls followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. He told them to respect the authorities of whatever place you happen to live, to honor and love all people. But then he reminds them that this isn't their true home. They're still living in Babylon. But, well, they're not living in Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Or does it? In the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. Okay, so we all live and work in Babylon. How do I seek the well-being of Babylon while my allegiance is to someone greater? Yes, Jesus' followers are called to live in that tension between loyalty and subversion. That's the way of the exile. Well, guys, I, I don't know about you, but that video was just really powerful for me. Um, it just, how freeing it is um, to have a third option. You know, as Christians, we have to decide 
there's, a, there's so many issues uh, in our culture now and say, do I go in this lane or am I in this lane? And it is just so freeing to have a third option that is directly tied to Jesus. So I'm going to kick this first one to Matt. And, you know, Matt, what do you, what do you think about this third option? Well, like you, I just think they do a great job in this video of offering that. And I think it's what Jesus was saying to us, and it's, and it's how Jesus lived his life. We, and they said that the other options, a revolt and compromise. Well, none of those look good to us because we're called in Romans 13 to live in responsiveness and obedience to the authorities that exist. Um, so revolt isn't an option, but certainly compromise isn't an option. So this is just a higher opportunity for us. And I, I just love this. And I think that's such a great word for our culture right now, for us as believers in a culture, that we can have impact and influence without either one of those, what we'd think of is, is really a negative option. And the option, they, they, the way they articulate that is with this term subversive loyalty. Um, you take a shot at that. What, is, what does that mean? And, and help us understand that. After watching that video at least a dozen times this past <laughs> week, I'm like, okay, this is the question. I got to get this figured out. Um, and what I'm going to do is just refer you back to the video. Uh, be like, cop out. No, um, there, there's, if you caught in like the last, if you go back and watch the last 60 seconds of the video, and the word that's used there is tension, and that Jesus is asking us to live in the tension between the idea of completely selling out and being a part of whatever whatever government, I don't care what it is or when it happens, but being part of that or completely going the other way, rebelling, revolt, hide, withdraw, whatever, like that you see a lot of that happening as well. And Jesus asks us to live in that tension. And most of Jesus's teachings traps us in a tension almost. A great example is in Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount, the context is revenge. <laughs> And Jesus says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you to, to love your enemies and to, to pray for those who, per, who persecute you. And, and, and he gives the example that if a Roman soldier, which was his legal right uh, as a Roman soldier, allowed, uh, demanded that anybody had to carry his stuff, his gear, his weapons, his armor, any of that stuff are up to a mile. And then after that, you, you could be cut loose. And Jesus says, give him another one. Don't just do the bare minimum that Rome requires. You give them one more to kind of expose maybe the inhumanity in the system. So Jesus is asking us to live in that kind of tension to, to say, hey, this is what the, the bare minimum is, but I'm going to go beyond that. I, I'm going to live within that tension. So if you find yourself in the tension, Jesus would say, that's the place you need to stay. Don't sell out. <laughs> Don't rebel. Don't say, well, I'm done with this and, and we're, we're going off the grid uh, because Jesus can't use you in that place. And so uh, if you are wrestling in the tension, Jesus's advice, my advice as well would be like, stay there. Stay in that tension between sub subversion and, and, and loyalty to, to Christ. Yeah. And Jesus said that, go the second mile to an oppressed people. These are Jewish people who were under the rule of the Roman Empire, and Rome was awful to anybody who wasn't Roman. <laughs> Just awful. And so Jesus is saying, if these rascals ask you to, to, to carry their pack a mile, do it and do a second one. That's amazing. And so God's people then and really throughout history have lived as exiles, have lived under the authority of another government. In most cases, it's been a tyrant, a tyrannical government. So... As you think of the term exile, just mm. what does that say to you? I mean, what, what do you think it means to live as a, today mm -hmm. 
uh, under that same identity as an exile. Yeah. I mean, when I think of being an exile, you are, you are living in a place that is not your home. And I think the Bible has been very clear that this is not our home. And that and we're, we are exiles here. Um, you know, some other words the Bible uses is uh, an alien or a sojourner, which means that you are living in a place temporarily. And we are not going to be exiles forever. This is just a temporary placement and assignment. Um, you know, which, and, and in that temporariness, I guess, um, it, it helps us to endure because we know it's not going to be forever. Um, and I know that we've all been homesick before, uh, being far away from home, being in another country. We know what it's like to be homesick, to be not in your home. Um, we're, comfor- we're comfortable in our home. And I, I found this great quote that I just wanted to share with you guys. I thought it was really profound. Um, it's by Rick Warren. It says, in order to keep us from becoming too attached to earth, God allows us to feel a significant amount of discontent and dissatisfaction in life. Longings that will never be fulfilled this side of eternity. We are not completely happy here because we are not supposed to be. This is not our home. So being in exile is temporary, but it's also an assignment that we've been given. So, you know, and moving on here, they talk about Babylon, and and while we don't mean the the city Babylon, Babylon as 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 a culture... Matt, how, would, how do we seek the well-being of the Babylon we live in now while also remaining loyal to Jesus? Yeah, it's a great question, and that's that tension Kevin was talking about. That's living between the already and the not yet. But I think the video referenced Babylon in Jeremiah 29, which we quote out of context all the time, where God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. He was saying that to exiles about how they should live in Babylon under oppressive, wicked rule. We want to apply that to the kingdom that is not yet. And that comes, oh, I know the plans I have for you. Yay, the utopian kingdom's going to come. That's not what that verse is about at all. That verse is about how to live under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ now while you also have to live under an oppressive, difficult authority. And that'll kind of turn you upside down. So we can do that, or Jesus wouldn't have commanded it. And he said in that text, so... What do you say? Plant gardens, build houses, settle down, and work literally for the, the good of your community. So we can live under the rule and reign of Jesus while living for the good of our culture and our community without putting our trust in an ideology, a political persuasion, etc. It looks like you I want to say, say something. If I could add is that that was all the setup to what, what God was telling the exiles through Jeremiah, and then he puts a time limit on that. Does anybody know what the time limit was on that? God says, then after 77 years, I'll come back and, and we'll, we'll head back to Israel. So I, I say that as like, oh no, I'm stuck in this. It's like, but, but, but to, to think, to, to keep that in mind, it's like the, the 70 years is, is it, it may feel like that, but God wants you there. And it may be a long period of time, but stay with it. God wants you to, 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 to stay there and plant your roots. Um, do, do the good for the people. I just want to make sure I add that. Because sometimes we think like, three years, Lord? Four years? Until we can change it and do something else and change the system? And God says, mm, 70. Wah, wah. But that's, that's okay. Because we're still able to honor Jesus and to... to and, and to, to have that subversive loyalty that we talk about. So, so keep that in mind. Keep that in mind, people. 
we shouldn't do this because now you're getting me all fired up to preach another sermon. <laughs> um, Stick around the yeah, summer. Because, you know, you know that do, do, working for the, the good of your culture and your community is not sitting around grumbling about who's in charge. Who does that bless? Who does that help? Okay, that was a short sermon. <laughs> I should pray or we're going to ramble on a long time. Jesus, thank you that you are our king. And Lord Jesus, we want to know you in new and fresh ways as king and sovereign and ruler of a kingdom that you have already brought to earth. So we open our hearts to you, Lord. Would you teach us in this series? And would you help us not just to have head knowledge, but empower us with your grace to know how to live for the good of our communities and our culture, that we could contribute to local flourishing. And that that would be for your glory. So lead us in that, we trust. In Jesus' name, amen.